Unfortunately, the interview that we promised at the end of our first podcast couldn't materialize due to how busy Audrey was and how time-sensitive the interview would be. We wish her the best of luck in her endeavors in the future. My name is Dr. Nate Shanock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for autism. <laughs> we call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not a part of the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant, filling in the gaps of each department like glue. I am also autistic. This is our second episode, episode two, researching the state of autism, part one. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Nate, can you give us any news and updates about the Foundation? Certainly, I'd be happy to. So the Foundation has continued to provide services to clients remotely, and is also offering a number of virtual classes and social meetings related to topics like job coaching, cooking, and mental health, just to name a few. Also, the foundation will reopen in limited capacity on June 1st, which is very exciting to us as we miss seeing all of our friends and coworkers. We'd like to give a special thank you to Julie Lodebell and Dr. Marlene Satello for providing masks to all foundation workers which are printed with our very sharp Els for Autism logo. We can't wait to be seeing everyone's faces in the three-dimensional world again, and we look forward to giving you all a big air hug. And I also look forward to giving you all a big air hug, too. <laughs> um, and air guitar to celebrate our uh, reunion. Can't wait. Okay, so now it's time to present Today in the World of Autism, starting with Dr. Shinnok and his very important research. Well, thanks, Merrick. I'll try to live up to that very uh, enthusiastic introduction. So the first finding that I'd like to talk about in um, the world of today is there was recently a study done from Dr. Karen Parker and colleagues at Stanford University. Go Cardinals! The researchers found that depleted vasopressin levels in infants aged three months and younger could serve as a useful hormonal indicator of autism. So you might be wondering what exactly vasopressin is. Well, it's a super important naturally occurring hormone that helps us control various bodily functions and has most importantly been linked to close bonding social behaviors in humans as well as other mammals. Vasopressin, like oxytocin, is known as a love-promoting hormone. It also allows us to regulate our circadian rhythm or the periods of sleepiness and wakefulness in a 24-hour cycle 
and helps us maintain our internal body temperature. So previous studies had shown that children with autism have nearly 66% less vasopressin in their cerebrospinal fluid compared to neurotypical peers, and a pattern of lower levels corresponded to decreased social skills. The authors commented that this was the earliest age to date that the link between vasopressin and autism had been explored. They used an interesting methodology where they obtained cerebrospinal fluid collected from children that were at the doctor's office to check for meningitis after those infants had experienced fever in the first three months of life. The presence of fever is admittedly a confounding factor to the association here. But anyways, the team, they identified samples from nine children who were later diagnosed with autism, and they compared their vasopressin levels in the cerebrospinal fluid to those of 17 control subjects who were matched for age, ethnicity, and sex. On average, the autistic children had about 20% lower concentrations of the hormone than the neurotypical children did. And follow-up analyses showed that early vasopressin levels actually correctly predicted an autism diagnosis in seven of the nine children in that group and its absence in 15 of the 17 control subjects. Although this study used a small sample, it is certainly promising work, and the authors hope to develop this line of research further into a potential early screening method. So what's the takeaway here? This study is exciting because it provides some preliminary evidence um, for vasopressin and other hormones predicting a diagnosis of autism. Nice work on the West Coast there, Dr. Parker. We'll link to this publication in our show notes. All right. So I've got two questions here. One, how does vasopressin control social behavior? And two, what is cerebrospinal fluid and how does it regulate brain activity? Excellent questions. I think I'll start with the second one. Well, cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, the primary function is to cushion the brain within the skull and serve as sort of a shock absorber to the central, for the central nervous system. Now, tests of the cere- cerebrospinal fluid look at white blood cells, bacteria, or other substances which may indicate meningitis. And as far as vasopressin, It's important to note that this is both a hormone and a neurotransmitter. So the release of vasopressin typically coincides with a social behavior like hugging a friend, spending time with a romantic partner, or just spending time hanging out with your friends. Vasopressin as a neurotransmitter has a downstream effect on the brain, which causes dopamine to be released. And what dopamine is, is a neurotransmitter that is released when a behavior is rewarding or enjoyable. So the release of dopamine that coincides with vasopressin release causes this social behavior to become more rewarding to us. So I would now like to shift gears a little bit, no pun intended, to an article that covers a... um, study that was done looking at the existing literature on the magnitude and types of challenges faced by individuals with autism related to driving and transportation. 
And this article was conducted by Dr. Caroline Rodier of the UC Davis Institute of Transportation Studies. The authors did a meta-analysis, which is an, an analysis of prior studies, so existing literature, and um, the topic, again, was looking at the types of challenges faced by individuals with autism related to transportation. This could be seen as a major barrier to obtaining employment for individuals with autism, as previous research has shown that adults face significantly more challenges with becoming employed and living independently in comparison to both typically developing adults and adults with other types of disabilities. So through the analyses, Dr. Rodier and team, they were able to reach several interesting conclusions and policy recommendations for the future. Number one, certified occupational therapists in the field of driving rehabilitation should be used to evaluate the driving abilities of individuals with autism and provide driving training in both autonomous and non-autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles, for those of you who haven't heard this term yet, are self-controlled cars. And now I officially feel like I'm living in an episode of the Jetsons or Futurama. Number two, for individuals who required autonomous vehicle technology, public funding should be made for helping individuals with autism to purchase these vehicles as funding is currently made available for those with physical disabilities to modify vehicles using the necessary adaptive equipment. Number three, more testing of vehicles with high levels of automation should be conducted but while this is going on, while the research is still being established, public funding should be made available to subsidize ride hailing services when these barriers exist. Services like trains, buses, or even um, services like Uber or Lyft. And lastly, number four, additional research is needed to evaluate the efficacy and safety of autonomous vehicles for regular and long-term use. What's the takeaway? I would say Dr. Rodier passed the checkered flag with some of these well-articulated arguments. This study was a well-constructed examination of existing evidence for guiding future policy. The key goal of a meta-analysis, well done. So I was wondering, Merrick, can you speak a little bit about your experience with transit issues as a barrier to employment? That's a very, very good question, Nate. So, as a person with autism, as many other people with autism, uh, many cannot drive. And uh, so, therefore, one example of a service that is used is a paratransit service that services individuals with disabilities and the elderly called Palm Tran Connection. And it operates within Palm Beach County, where our foundation is. And uh, it's a very, very good service, but it's also highly restricted. And it also basically means because of its scheduling and because of its collective responsibilities that it is also pretty much not that much of a big step towards getting certain jobs. 
Now, of course, because I can't drive, I can't be, of course, delivery driver, uh, trucker, anything that involves being behind the wheel. Um, <clears throat> so that in itself is a limit. Another limit are the jobs that require reliable transportation, which usually means that you have to own a vehicle, you have to know someone who owns a vehicle who wouldn't mind lending it to you. Whatever it is, um, you have to know how to drive. And also, I think that uh, there's maybe a little bit of a feeling of eh, about people who cannot drive with certain with certain other jobs, I'll give a little bit of an anecdote to sort of explain myself. So, I uh, had an application sent in, and this was years ago. And I'm not going to mention the company's name or the person who had a phone conversation with me. But needless to say... The phone conversation went very well. It was a nice phone interview. And then at the very end, he asked me when I would be available. Or he asked me, he told me that in two to three weeks, <clears throat> he would try to call me. And noticing that it would be good to showcase my availability I decided to give him an idea that I take Palm Train Connection and that these are the scheduled times and the restrictions to maybe give him a better idea as to when I would be available. And I thought to myself, I've done, you know, I was being courteous. I was giving out decent information. I did not think that that would disqualify me from going into an in-person interview because he told me about going in for an in-person interview. So, two to three weeks passed. And being a little bit literal in the head, I call him up and he basically says to me, he says to me that, uh, well, you must have uh, failed the interview and then he hung up on me mm. now the thought is is that because I disclosed that I was using para, a paratransit service that to him that rang a doorbell of uh oh and that's rather unfortunate but I've had to face different barriers and uh, so thank you for the question very interesting answer. A lot of good points made there. And I was also wondering, how do you feel about the use of automated cars? I think that it would open up a lot of opportunities for people who really want to drive, who really want to go places, and who want jobs that maybe require a vehicle to handle. Um, there was a... a <laughs> There was an in-person, uh, I guess you can call it a survey done um, weeks ago, where one of the questions was, if you had to do something that was um, 
that, that you couldn't do before or that you needed to learn, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And uh, to drive was answered by a majority of the individuals with autism in this group. So it's a very big deal. And I think that once it's uh, commercially available at an affordable price and glitch-free or bug-free, I would definitely want to get an automated vehicle. I think that uh, while we talk a lot about how good they would be for the general populace, for the disabled community, I think it would be a huge boon. And I am very, very supportive of automated vehicles. Um, I'm just looking forward to the future. Could be 20 years, could be 30 years when automated vehicles arrive at different car dealerships and I can choose one of them to drive me back home. And then to drive me up to New York or to Vermont, that would be a dream. That's an excellent point. And I hope that you would give me a lift in your automated vehicle if you were to get one. Um, and also, interesting, a lot of, a lot of potential um, for individuals with autism and those with disabilities. And that, that should be a point that's made more frequently, I think, for guiding funding and research towards the automation of vehicles. So um, I think now we will, I will hand it over to Merrick, who's going to tell us a few bits of news in the past couple weeks that are inspirational. So a little bit of good news for us amidst these difficult times. So according to this link that will appear on our show notes, during this time of uncertainty, especially for students seeking an education, this should be an inspirational story. It is about Eileen Lyman, who became the valedictorian at Our Lady of of Tapioc High School, an all-girls Catholic school in Little Village on Chicago's southwest side. Unable to speak at around four years of age, Eileen ended up encountering adversity in elementary and middle school due to her difficulties communicating with others as an individual with autism. As a tip of the hat to my colleague, Dr. Shinnok, Ms. Lyman is going to go to Lawrence University in Wisconsin to either take up psychology or engineering as her major. The staff at her school <clears throat> had a drive-through ceremony in the month at the end of May in the parking lot, and we'll probably do another one in July but at least her speech will be on the school's website. So here's my question for Nate. If you look up valedictorian and autism on a search engine, many stories pop up about different valedictorians of autism. What do you think are traits found in individuals of autism that makes them able to excel so much in their studies? That's really a fascinating question. And I would like to start by saying that The autism spectrum is very broad, right? So the type of skills that would help lead a child or an individual with autism to excel in their studies as a valedictorian, or as we see more and more frequently to excel in 
perfect in the professional world, whether it be medicine or you know technology, even on Silicon Valley, we see uh, a lot of individuals with autism have great success. But I think the traits that allow these individuals to be so successful is that individuals with autism are really good, I think, at focusing in on what they're doing. And there's a great attention to detail um, that I see at least in the work that I've done with these individuals where they just, they really immerse themselves into the work and do whatever it takes, study the uh, crazy amount of hours that it would take to become a valedictorian, uh, a valedictorian rather. And that's what it's, that's what is necessary to really excel in a specific field is to devote yourself to so many hours and really diving in deep into a topic to gain a full understanding um, at, a, at an advanced level. What do you think, Merrick? Do you have anything to add to that? Well, I know that when I was much, much younger, I think that it's all the adversity and bullying, or at least it was the idea that not that many people can understand you. Adversity can sometimes breed a feeling of competitiveness with other students uh, or this need to prove yourself. And I didn't exactly have it last throughout uh, all of high school. I got A's and B's, honor roll a whole bunch of times. But my uh, biggest accomplishment was going to this one history class. And I had a very big interest in history. I actually took that textbook home, and I would read that forward and back a few times. And then every time I was bored, I would read through the pages, intensely interested in making sure that I was um, going to be very, very successful in the class and that I really wanted to showcase that I can go beyond what people were expecting of me. And so what happened was that I got uh, probably, I think I had a 105% uh, grade, and I had a very, very long-standing one of that, enough to where the teacher said that I should be going up to, in our school we had level one, level two, which was the average, uh, which were the average classes. Three was honors, and four was the advanced placement. And uh, my teacher was asking me to go up to level three for history because I was doing so well. And I was doing so well that one, that I became a little bit of a superstar in the class. <laughs> and this one. There, there, we played this one little bit of Jeopardy, this little game, and I was up there competing with two other students, and I didn't have the book with me. I didn't have any notes on my hands, but the student thought that I had cheated because I got so much of it right. And that was, I mean, to me, that was very, very important to show that even though I may have autism or I may be a very 
interesting, very different person than people would expect, that doesn't mean that I cannot accomplish anything. So it's not just focus, it's not just concentration. It also is the fact that many, many people with autism have had to deal with adversity in some way or another in their lives. And they want to prove that maybe even if they may have a few things that are different that lead to social alienation and bullying, that doesn't mean that they are any less talented than their peers. So I think that that's a very important thing to think about. An excellent point, that motivation factor. And you reminded me of of growing up. When I was growing up, I had a close friend who had Asperger's, or he still has Asperger's today, um, but he loved playing basketball. And he wanted more than anything else to prove to his peers that he was a good basketball player and that he could you know, play on a team and play with the other kids uh, just as well as any neurotypical child could. And I remember he would shoot free throws um, and, and take shots for hours and hours during the day. And I, I, think, I think you made a great point that that motivation has a lot to do with the enhancement of that uh, devotion to the goal. So I think we've got one more story. If you yep. want to go for it, Merrick. All right. So besides education, employment is another form of uncertainty for those with autism. To transition from a normal work environment to either unemployment or remote work should be extremely stressful and a struggle. And that seems to be the story for many people today. I've heard of people who have had difficulties acclimating, whether neurotypical or otherwise, to the general work climate today. I should feel the same way, but I actually find remote work to be a pleasant experience. And I'm not the only person with autism who feels that way. In fact, I've had two jobs. One is my second job currently that were are both remote. One story is about Ultranauts an engineering firm who already had a remote setup in place before COVID-19 and made such an impact on the way we do things job-wise, and how their 75% autistic staff has led the company to be a Fortune 500 company. What is meaningful about this story is how they've used the full spectrum, no pun intended, of technology in order to reduce any of the downsides of working remotely like expressing work-related difficulties and challenges and how they are willing to share these tips and others for anyone else who is considering what it is like for remote work. The second story is about Autocon, a global IT consulting firm whose 200 or 300 employees are autistic and who have transitioned, at least temporarily, to a remote work model. What David Aspinall, CEO of Autocon U.S., has found, shocked him. Beyond the efficiency levels and cost savings, communication skills have greatly improved, and there is a great deal of trust already. But we are considered to be very direct and honest. I can tell you all that I'm a terrible liar. <laughs> That's true. 
You can find links to both stories in the show notes. So, my hope is to mainstream remote work as a proper option for those with autism. Not everybody can handle the stimuli of constant socialization and having to use whatever commuting skills they have to work on site every day. They have to. It can be quite exhausting for many people, and so if there is a way to spotlight it, I'd like to do so. Interesting. Very interesting. So, Merrick, what disadvantages do you see from remote work for those with autism? Because I know you've mentioned a lot of the positives. So, one of the disadvantages has to do with transition. Um, with the transitional phase. So, usually people work on site. Uh, if you're working for a retail job, or many, many people with autism work on site or have worked on site, and they maybe work within environments where they probably have to deal with a lot of people every day. Now, if they're basically told you have to go on home and you have to work from home, that can be a very big challenge because it's just basically flinging someone into an environment that they are very unfamiliar with. I also think that not every single job, while it's remote, it isn't fully remote. And that can be a little bit of a problem where they maybe want you to report to the office like once every two weeks. And besides the pros and cons of on-site work, that's also dealing with the transition, transitional phase. I also think that it's more difficult for people with communication, socio-communication barriers to be able to communicate effectively if they're not able to have all the forms of communication available to them. I also do believe um, that uh, many a times they may feel like if they're at home and they have to deal with other people living at the same place and there are altogether stressors to that individual. Um, it can be very, very difficult for them to be able to feel un- unstressed during a time in which they have to do work mostly, maybe around the family or family members, um, people who they think really want to get away from because they feel like that uh, it's it's for any reason. And it may also make them feel like that they're not doing things as effectively as if they were showing up to a place on time. Hmm. Um, so I think that there are some disadvantages uh, for remote work. Interesting. Well, like most situations, there are pros and cons, right? Right. Interesting that you brought up the factor of having other family members at home 
with you while you're trying to work. So I had, I had thought of the positives of that for social support and for really continuing to practice some of those socio-communication skills, like you mentioned, but I hadn't really thought of the negative, the negatives of it. And that having a lot of people in the work environment can be very distractive. And I actually heard that a number of people who had several kids at home, or if you're like me and you have a couple dogs, that can be uh, a great source of joy, but also a a huge distraction. Um, Some people have taken to their cars to set up mini offices during this time. So I thought that, that that was pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, um, will be interesting to continue to, to study this moving forward and determine what, what other factors sort of moderate this effect of working at home versus working in the office on, um, success for not just individuals with autism, but for, for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that it's very important to figure out the strengths and weaknesses of such an approach instead of, you know, just turning a blind eye to it. But that's just me, of course. (laughs) All of our opinions are not fully representative of the foundation as a whole. So if I say something, just that's my word. But it's not something that, you know, you should take as representative of the foundation as a whole. (laughs) Full disclaimer, we will, or rather, I will say something silly at some point. And very important to mention that our views are our own views and do not fully reflect the views of the foundation. All right. So before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in June to celebrate Autistic Pride Day, June 18th, and my birthday, June 19th, with an interview with me, Merrick Egbert, and two feature stories on two members of our advisory board for our Today in the World of Autism segment. Hope you enjoy your time with us. Catch you all later. Four. Four. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly.